the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We're taking a slight detour in our survey of Luke. Chapter 18 has us looking at our children in the covenant of grace, which takes us to the nature of baptism out of Matthew 28. Join us. Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner is coming right up. Understanding what baptism is helps us then understand how it is properly applied. And Scripture is not silent on the issue. Greetings and welcome to our program. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. The nature of baptism is the subject of our time today. Matthew 28 is where we're at. Join us here in verses 18 through 20 as we take a look at the nature of baptism. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. So let's start off by noting, first of all, that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we baptize people in the church for only one reason. And it is not because the church has been doing it now for over 2,000 years. We baptize people in the church only because the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, instituted baptism for his church. That's why Dr. Benaldi read the Great Commission in Matthew 28 this afternoon. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, make the nations my disciples, and baptize them in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." In other words, beloved, baptism was started by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who initiated it. And now it has a permanent place in the life of the church until the end of the world. In fact, it will be a sign and a seal of all the blessings of God's salvation until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back at the end of history. Now, there are three essential elements in baptism. But first, let me ask you, when is baptism a baptism? How do you know that you have had a valid baptism? I mean, is it okay for anyone to take you out to the swimming pool and immerse you in the name of John the Baptist? When is baptism a baptism. Can we really boil it down to the basic elements without which you would not have a baptism? Yet, when you do have these elements, you do have a legitimate baptism. And the answer is yes. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, paragraph 2, answers this way. The outward element 
to be used in this sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit by a minister of the gospel, lawfully called thereunto. So you can bring baptism down to its three basic elements. The application of water in the name of the triune God by a minister lawfully called and ordained into the office of ministry. Now let's take a few moments and look at each one of these. Because if you have all three of these, then and only then do you have a legitimate baptism. First of all, the application of water. The water signifies cleansing. And it signifies the blood of Christ that washes away our sins and guilt. It signifies the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit that washes away sin's corruption. John Calvin said, This does not mean that our cleansing and salvation are accomplished by water, or that water contains in itself the power to cleanse, regenerate, and renew, nor that it is the cause of salvation. But only that in this sacrament are received the knowledge and certainty of such gifts. He says water is an essential element of baptism because it symbolizes cleansing. But it is not the water of baptism that regenerates and transforms. It is baptism that gives God's people the knowledge and certainty that the new birth belongs to them. So the first absolute essential to baptism is the application of water. Secondly, it must be done in the name of our triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus said in the Great Commission that Larry read. Now, what does it mean to be baptized into the name of the triune God? First, it means we are baptized by the authority of our triune God. It means that we are baptized into a Trinitarian faith. It also means we are solemnly devoted to the service of that triune God, and that we are baptized into fellowship with the three persons of the Trinity. And we're going to come back to this later. But that is the second absolute essential of baptism. It must be done in the name of our triune God. Then thirdly, baptism must be performed by a minister of the gospel duly ordained. Robert Shaw a Scottish Presbyterian preacher of the last century wrote a book simply titled The Reformed Faith. And what I'm about to quote to you from that great book is what Presbyterians have always believed about this idea that only ministers can perform baptisms. He said, They only have authority to baptize who have received a commission from Christ to preach the gospel through ordination. Remember, as I have taught in the past, ministers are the faithful stewards of the ministries of God, mysteries of God. That is, those things which God has revealed to us in His words, which would not be known to us by any other means except by His word. 
and that is they alone, the preachers that God has given us the privilege to baptize. So we find that there are three elements, and no other in the New Testament involved in baptism. Only water is used. You can't use anything like lemonade or tea, guys. Only the name of the triune God is to be used, and in the New Testament, no one ever baptized, no one ever baptized except ministers of the gospel. And that's the reason for this basic argument. Those are the three elements and the only three elements that are in a biblical baptism. However, the Reformed Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church, and some liberal Presbyterian churches have several little cute elements in their baptisms which have not been commanded by the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, they have added the blessing of the water in the font, They denounce Satan. They anoint with the sign of the cross. They even anoint the eyelids and ears with saliva. They breathe on the baptized person. They put on special vestments, and even some of them use a rosebud to sprinkle the water on the baptized person. Now, all of these things originated in the mind of mere men, and were not given to us by the head of the church, and are not to be a part of baptism. But we must conclude, if a person has received a valid baptism, that is, if he has received the application of water in the name of the triune God by someone ordained by the church with the authority to baptize, then he should never be rebaptized. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, again, chapter 28, paragraph 7, says this. The sacrament of baptism is but wants to be administered unto any person. If I, for instance, were to be rebaptized for whatever reason, someone in our presbytery could bring charges against me and I could possibly be booted out of our presbytery if I did not repent. Because, beloved, it is a serious thing to be baptized more than once. And there are three reasons for this. Three reasons why you should never be rebaptized if you have already experienced a valid baptism sometime in your life. The first reason God takes every single baptism seriously, whether anyone else does or not. If the parents don't take it seriously, if the preacher doesn't take it seriously, God takes all baptisms seriously, just like he took all circumcisions seriously in Old Testament Israel. Baptism today, like circumcision then, placed the person that received the sign and the seal of the covenant into the realm of God's special blessings and God's special curses. Read Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 this afternoon to see what those special blessings and curses are. When a person receives the sign of the covenant, circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New Testament, and he is faithful to that sign, he is in store for God's special blessings. 
But if he receives the sign of the covenant and turns away from everything it signifies, then he is in store for God's special curses. God, beloved, took every circumcision seriously in the Old Testament. And to be baptized is to say that God does not take rebaptized, is to say that God does not take our baptism seriously, which is contradicted by the Word of God. He takes all legitimate baptisms seriously. Second reason, since baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision, as it was the original sign and seal of God's cleansing, then rebaptism is as impossible as recircumcision. So if you were baptized as a little baby, and then later in life you felt the need to be immersed in some immersionist church, whatever that second baptism was, it wasn't a real baptism. You can only be truly baptized once. It is impossible to be rebaptized. You can go through the motions. But it is not a baptism. The third reason, and here is Robert Shaw once again. This is plain from the nature of the ordinance of baptism. It is a solemn admission of the person baptized into membership of the visible church. And though those that walk disorderly are to be cast out of the church, there is no hint in the scripture that when they were readmitted to fellowship after repenting, that they were to be baptized again. The thing signified by baptism, which is regeneration, cannot be repeated, and the engagements that come with it can never be disannulled. In other words, you can't do anything in the symbolic elements of baptism that would contradict what it says. And since it signifies regeneration, beloved, how many times can you be born again? Of course, only once. Therefore, if someone gets rebaptized or attempts to, which is a better way of saying it, then it breaks the whole symbol and implies that you can be baptized a second time after you have fallen away or supposedly lost your salvation, which means you can then be regenerated a second time. And that is heretical. For those three reasons, God takes baptism seriously. Since baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision, it, has, it is as impossible to be rebaptized as it is to be recircumcised. So to be baptized, rebaptized, you would be denying. By symbolic action, the once-for-all nature of the new birth and regeneration. I want to read to you a wonderful quote by John Calvin, and then I'm going to read to you a couple of paragraphs of explanation of John Calvin's words by Pastor Ronald Wallace. Calvin said, We must realize that whenever we are baptized, we are once-for-all washed and purged for our whole life. Therefore, as often as we fall away, we ought to recall the memory of our baptism and fortify our minds with it, that we may always be sure and confident of the forgiveness of sins. 
There's no doubt that all pious folk throughout life, whenever they are troubled by a consciousness of their faults, may venture to remind themselves of their baptism. That from it, they may be confirmed in assurance of that soul and perpetual cleansing that we have in Christ's blood. In other words, baptism lasts your whole life. You only need it once. Ronald Wallace explains Calvin's remarks this way. Baptism is never repeated. It is a sign given once to every believer, but the sign given at that one occasion can in the later years still remain continually effective if it is properly used and continually connected to the truth and its efficacy. The power of baptism never becomes obsolete in a believer. Thus, even though the believer cannot with any vividness, remember the occasion of his baptism. In other words, if you were baptized as an infant. Nevertheless, in remembering the simple fact that at one time he was baptized, can, in his time of need, yield all the effectiveness attached to the sacrament through the promises of God. Though the visual figure passes away, the grace which it testifies to still remains. The spiritual grace at which baptism is a sign, namely mortification, the putting to death of sin, is not simply given in one great crisis, but is, continue, is a continued process taking place throughout all the length of the Christian's life. That's another reason you don't need to be rebaptized. You are baptized once for all of life, and whenever things go wrong in your life, if you backslide, remember that you are baptized. Remember what baptism signifies. Remember what you committed yourself to or committed your children to. And that sacrament will still be a means of grace to you, strengthening you, reassuring you of your salvation and your regeneration in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because a valid baptism includes these three elements that we do not need to be rebaptized. And it is because of that that the historic Reformed Church as stance has been for 500 years to accept Roman Catholic baptism. That is, if someone were to join Reformed Heritage Church from the Catholic Church, we would not rebaptize them. Why? Because they were baptized with water in the name of the triune God by a minister lawfully ordained by a church to perform baptism. And that was the stand of the Reformed faith throughout the centuries. And it's interesting to look back and see why the Reformers were so anxious to present this particular viewpoint. They thought it was biblical, first of all, but they also thought it was practical. Because remember, most of the Reformers were baptized by Roman Catholic priests. And not one of them was ever rebaptized, except for the radical Anabaptists. Anna means again, to baptize again. 
The Anabaptists were a radical group that were on the fringe of the Reformed movement and who believed that you had to be rebaptized if you were not baptized by immersion and or you were baptized by a Roman Catholic priest. And none of the early reformers were rebaptized. John Calvin was baptized by a Roman Catholic priest and he was never rebaptized. And his wife was immersed as an Anabaptist and was never rebaptized. If they believed that the Roman Catholic Church taught baptism, if, if they believed that the Bible taught that Roman Catholic baptism was invalid, then there would have been a break in the history of the church. And none of those leaders of the Protestant Reformation who were never rebaptized would have bore the brand of Christ. But you see, they said if the Roman Catholic Church, even with all of its heresy and all of its apostasy, baptized in the name of the triune God with water by a minister lawfully ordained by a denomination or church, then they would not be rebaptized. And that has been the stand of the Presbyterian Church for 500 years. Now let's talk about the Trinitarian nature of baptism. Go back to Matthew 28, 19. And look at that phrase again in the Great Commission. It does not say in the Greek, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. The preposition there actually in the Greek is into, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that prepositional phrase helps us understand the meaning of baptism. A similar phrase is used time and again throughout the New Testament to be baptized into something. For instance, in 1 Corinthians, it says that the Israelite fathers were baptized into Moses. In the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul asked the question, you've not been baptized into the name of Paul, have you? In Matthew 28, we are said to be baptized again into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 3, we are said to be baptized into Christ. In Romans 6, we were baptized into Christ's death. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are baptized by one spirit into one body. This is a consistent way of speaking in the New Testament, to be baptized into something. Now that phrase obviously expresses a relationship of a person to the person into whose name that person is baptized. Did you follow that? It is describing, basically, a relationship. And the focus of baptism and all of its various ramifications is on this very relationship that is implied in the phrase to be baptized into Christ or into the name of the triune God. And to be baptized into someone is to be in union with someone. Understand that the word baptism does not mean immerse. The word baptism does not mean to sprinkle. The word baptism in most of these instances means to be brought into union with. For instance, the Bible says 
that the children of Israel, as they went through the Red Sea, were baptized into Moses. Now, does that mean they were immersed into Moses? Does that mean they were sprinkled into Moses? No, the children of Israel were brought into union with Moses as the mediator of the Old Covenant. So to say we are baptized into Christ or baptized in the, true, in the triune God is to say we are brought into union with Him. So that baptism at its heart signifies and seals our union with the triune God and more particularly our union with the Lord Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. Just as circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign and a seal of the union God established with His people in Genesis 17.1 when He said, I am going to be a God to you and your children after you down through the generations an everlasting covenant. And here is the sign that I want you to bear that gives testimony to that union circumcision. So to be baptized into the name of the triune God is the focus of baptism. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us, PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org. And if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org. Or again, call 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. <music>